Lord, we do know that there are calamities in the world that's going on right now, particularly those war going on in Ukraine and Russia. We do pray for them. Pray for particularly our brothers and sisters in the faith that are in both of those countries. Lord, we know that it is a very tumultuous time and just so much uncertainty, so much calamity, and so much evil going on. But Lord, there are complexities about this that we will not fully understand this side of glory. But do pray for those Christians there in both sides. Lord, may you be with them in a very special way as they're trying to minister and make sense uh, of everything that's going on. We pray that this would be a unique opportunity for people to see and know you through the horrors of war and death, that they start questioning life and how they can make sense of everything. Lord, we know that nothing in this world makes sense apart from you. Would you pray for those brothers and sisters there, that you strengthen them, that in the time of great fear, that they live without fear, that they are bold, uh, and not just for their lives, but to call people to salvation. As the people there are struggling and losing their homes, may you assure them that they have a home in, in the heavenly places. We look for a day where there is no more war, where there is no more famine, where there is no more calamities and no more tears. Lord, we know that that day will only come when you reign. So Lord, your kingdom come, and may you not tarry, and may you return so that you can be the king of kings and reign and, and have true peace, everlasting peace in this world. Lord, we bring up this issue as we worship you tonight through the preaching of your word. You would be with me, allow me to speak clearly, uh, to feed your flock, so that all of us will be able to be conformed to the image of your son. In your son's precious name, amen. There are certain realities of life, and uh, if you get older, you'll, it becomes more and more apparent and real, and those two things, as has been said, that the realities, the things that will happen in your life, one of them is death. And the other one, taxes. And depending on how you look at it, you might think taxes and death are just synonymous with one another. I was trying to teach this valuable lesson to my kids just a few hours ago. We were having dinner, and uh, there was this little orange that they wanted. And uh, I opened it. You know, those little tangerine kind of things. I opened it for them, and their eyes were huge, and their mouth was, little mouths were open, and... One of them was drooling already as I was peeling open this orange. And I was trying to explain to them, kids, this is what taxes look like. So I took that orange, and, I, and there was like 10 little pieces there, and I ate four of them right in front of their faces as they were just like, what are you doing, Dad? And I tried to explain to them what taxes are, and Ruby was like, well, yeah, what is taxes? And I said, taxes are things that you give to the government, and what they do, use the money for is usually for public service things like the buses and the, the, the parks and all the things that we get to enjoy in life. And that's why we give money to the government. That's why we pay our taxes. To which my daughter asks, okay, can I have my taxes now? I was like, okay, no, that's, 
you're missing the point here. But we understand that taxes can be complicated and tax collectors can be hated. And we think about that. We think about the IRS coming in and asking us for money that we didn't pay. These people are like, they're like hawks. They just look at, they look at your, the numbers and then you're missing something. They'll send you a bill. And if you don't pay it, they'll throw you in prison. Tax collectors were not just hated back then. They're, you know, they're not as despised now, but particularly back then in the time of Christ, being a tax collector was a social outcast. It's not something that people, I mean, when you, if you want to be a tax collector, it's something that, it's not a noble task, but there is a lot of rewards to it. And as we think about this context here in the book of Mark, when Jesus is calling his disciples to him at this point in the text, there's maybe three apostles with him, and he's now calling the fourth one. There's other disciples that are following him. There's a huge crowd. Jesus' ministry is growing. And in this passage, we see something very special and unique about our Lord, that he is a friend of sinner. And when we think about why that is, why is our God like this? It's just the reality that he is a loving God. He is a God of grace. And, and it's usually God's grace is offensive to those who do not understand grace. And we see this contrast here, as I just read through text, of these tax collectors and these Pharisees and scribes. There's this, almost this tension going on, and Jesus is kind of at the center of everything. And as we walk through these four scenes, as we go through them, they're really supposed to show us why our God is a friend of sinners, why Jesus is described that way, why we call him a good and kind and loving God. Why would Jesus ever be friends with sinners. So the first scene that we can see that can help us understand that our Lord is indeed a good God, he's good friends with wicked sinners, is this first scene I would call it the call, verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, and he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to them, follow me. He got up and followed him. Again, Jesus' popularity is growing. Uh, in the last section, we learned about how Jesus was in, was in Capernaum, and he was in a house. Um, it's, it's some commentators think they could have been some random person's house, or even could have been Jesus' own house. It doesn't really say, but then Jesus was able to heal this paralytic uh, his, his four friends were able to find out where Jesus was, dug a hole, and then brought his, the paralytic down, and people were being healed. And, um, and he was really instructing a lot of them to not tell everyone. And he, he's been doing miracles after miracles, and people are hearing things about Jesus, so Jesus' popularity is growing and growing. And he was already described, Jesus was described as almost like an enemy to the scribes and Pharisees because they've heard about this teacher. And he's now telling these paralytic and sick people that their sins are forgiven. And that really shores up the fact that only God can forgive. He's basically telling them that this is his divinity, that Jesus is God. He is the only one that can forgive sin. And by saying these things and doing all these miracles, there are those that are believing in him and there are those that are just growing in their hatred towards him. And as he's growing in his popularity, he has to move from into one place to another just to accommodate those that, are, that want to hear him teach. 
You see that it said he went to the seashore. This is near the Sea of Galilee. There's just a whole bunch of people following him. And they want to hear him teach. And it's really just it's, it's God's grace. You see that like, he cares about people. He sees their needs. And he wants to teach them about the kingdom of God. But as he was going and passing the seashore, he noticed this man named Levi. And this word saw and in Luke, it uses the word glance, and it could imply that maybe if Jesus had met him before or seen him before, I mean, he's been in Galilee for a while, he's aware of the surroundings, so he might have seen Levi, and this Levi was just sitting there in his booth. Now, Levi, who is this Levi? Um, he is, uh, a lot of commentators would agree, and I think tradition even says that Levi is Matthew. He's the tax collector. He's the guy that wrote the book of Matthew. Jesus saw him, and he saw him what he will be, and he eventually will change the name from Levi to Matthew. And Matthew just, it means gift of God. And it's really fascinating when you think about the totality of biblical theology. Because in this portion, we, you know, I've said in the, in the earlier message that Mark is the first gospel. the first gospel ever written, and then uh, later on, Matthew writes the gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, I bet, probably read this account and thought, yeah, I remember that. I remember when Jesus came. I'm sure he remembers all these events, which is interesting reading about your own testimony that's recorded in Scripture. Eventually, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew will write a gospel himself, and he would write his gospel directed directly to the Jews while showing them that Jesus is the promised king. It's a really cool parallel that in Mark, you see Jesus as a servant. And later on in the book of Matthew, when the gospel is written, you, the, uh, Matthew wants to show the world that Jesus is king. So this is Levi. He is hated by the people around him because he was a tax collector. And it, it was probably most offensive was that his name was Levi. And it's implied that means he was probably from the Davidic, the priestly line of Levi. So that offended people even more. He was supposed to represent the Lord to the people as a priest, right? He had the bloodline. He had the rights to do it. But instead of representing uh, Yahweh to the people as a priest, he, rem he represented Caesar to the people. And in order to understand how bad it was to be a tax collector, just indulge with me. Let me explain to you some of the tax rules. Some of you county people like maybe like this, or many people you might enjoy this, but everyone else, just, just try to understand how, what it's like if you were in this world where there's these people roaming around constantly taking your oranges. Kind of like the way, not oranges, taxes. Sorry, I'm thinking about my, my trauma, traumatizing my kids earlier. But yes, think about people that are just constantly taking your money. So there are different tax rules. Uh, and usually, the way the tax collectors come to, came to be is that they would... The Roman Empire, they were really smart in that they, you know, they were really the center of everything. All the road, they were being able to build all these roads and uh, connected everything. It was like the most powerful empire in the world in, in the, the, the world at the time. And what they would do is that they would kind of, you know, divide the place up, and they'll have different rulers over them, and a way for them to govern everyone is that they need to get taxes and. Uh, one of the things that they would do, instead of just hiring someone from their own, like Rome's, like, let's go out into these places, they'll say, hey, why won't you uh, raise up someone within your town, and that person will represent Caesar? And then the reason why that's there is so that the, 
you know, because not all the Romans and officials know the people, so like, we don't know what, um, how to tax them. So we, uh, we don't know if they would even pay their taxes and how they would uh, fix this problem by having one of their own. So if it was like SFBC, they'll hire someone from SFBC to represent, uh, you know, to, to get the taxes. So, you know, if you guys have kids and there's a tax, they can say, oh yeah, that person did have a kid or this person did buy an animal, and we can tax them. So the person that becomes a tax collector if they choose to be in this position, how they would get this position is that they, in our day, it would be kind of like a pyramid scheme. They'll say, oh, if you buy in, you pay X amount of dollars, and then whatever money you get is, is for you to keep. So they'll, you know, they'll say, like, you have to, in order to be taxed, like, you have to have this amount of sum, and then usually people that want to do it, they'll pay it up front. They'll pay this money, and as they're collecting taxes, they're really paying themselves back. And there's all of these different rules that, that, that would come into play, and they would find different ways to try to get money from people. And there's a, a, this duty tax, which is basically a tax for things like roads and different items and different ports that you go to. And just think about it, you know, there's all these different roads in, in Rome. And they would go, uh, and they so someone had to pay for it, and then if you pass this road, it's like, okay, you need to pay X amount of taxes because you're going to go on this road. Oh, there's a, how many people are on this car, in this cart? Okay, and then you need to pay uh, this much more because of how many people are there. So they'll find all of these little reasons to tax people. And uh, there's a poll tax. It's just the fact that you are alive. Uh, you have you got to pay a tax. Um, there's these things that, like stated tax. There's like like you know, uh, like what we call ground tax here in the time. It's like if you have oil, you have one tenth of it has to go to the government. Or if you have uh, wine, one fifth of it. And if you have fish, you have to pay taxes for that as well. And that's probably what Levi was because he was by the seashore. He was probably taxing all of the fishermen there. And if people could not pay it, if they couldn't pay the tax, like oh hey, you have they'll make it like this receipt. Like here are all of these different things that you need to pay, and if they can't pay it. They'll ask the tax, like, tax collectors for a loan. And they'll say, okay, yeah, well, I'll pay it for you, but you have to pay all this money back. In a lot of ways, these tax collectors was kind of like the mob. You know, they have the power of the Roman Empire in the back. Like, if you don't pay this, we're going to arrest you. Uh, that's one of the things that they try to accuse Jesus of. Like, uh, did you pay your taxes? And Jesus said, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, which is obviously not true. But they did all this so that, to the point where being known as a tax collector is not something that's noble. In fact, it's very rare that a tax collector is very honest. And not only this, but the main thing was that these tax collectors, especially if they're Jewish, is that they see them as a traitor. So because of that, these people were spiritually and socially outcasted. And the Jews saw the Jewish tax collectors as, as betrayers of their own people, Again, they taxed everything, sheep, baby, beans, whatever you can think of, they found a way to tax you. So it was in, that, in light of that context, when Jesus says, follow me, when he commands him to follow him, it's a very strange thing. So why would Jesus call such a wicked man to himself? And in this command, this command here, it's, you know, it's this effectual call. We could feel, the effectual call basically is when we share the gospel and then they get moved by the Holy Spirit to become a believer. I think that's what's going on here. There's the general call is when you just share the gospel and some people reject it. That's called the general call. But in this moment when Jesus tells him to follow me, it's not just follow in terms of direction, but he's telling him to, to believe in him, to submit to, uh, to, to submit to Jesus as his Lord. And, and look how Levi responds. He responds by, he gets up, he follows Jesus. 
There's something supernatural going on about this. Levi obey. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, verse 20, it says that he leaves everything behind and he goes and follows Jesus. And the natural question is, like, is that you? When Jesus called you, when you heard the gospel for the very first time, when the gospel made sense to you, is this, can you say that this is how you define your life? Did you leave everything behind to follow Jesus? And this isn't to say that you don't have a job or you leave your family. It's just in your heart. What is it that you love the most? As your affections change, do you have a wholehearted devotion to the Lord or is your heart still loving the things of old? Jesus is gracious in the fact that he calls anyone and everyone to himself. We are all the scum of the earth. We're not worthy of God's saving, effectual call. But yet, that's what he does. He calls those that are the, what the world will describe as, as foolish and the ones that the, the, the weakest, the most hated in the, in the world to his own. He calls those that don't deserve and the least expected to be his special possession. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Our Lord chooses those that are unexpected. And that's where you and I come in. Don't think that just because you are a Christian today that you're, there's something special about you. The only thing that's special is what God has given you. And your main thing is that you are a believer. You call yourself a Christian. The reason why you have that identity has nothing to do with your background, has nothing to do with your occupation, has nothing to do with your natural abilities. It has everything to do with the Lord calling you and you having a desire for him. God calls you and he, in this list of the, all the taxes that I mentioned, we can, if we were to revert that just to, for our own sins, you know, we can have a list of all these things and why we shouldn't be saved, but yet God still calls us. That's why he's such a good God, because he is willing to call those who are undeserving. And the world saw the tax collector as undeserving. We need to see ourselves that way, too. We are like this tax collector. We are like Levi in that way. We don't deserve God's kindness and grace because of all the sins that we've committed. But yet in his calling, we see his kindness. But not only that, we see God's kindness in the celebration. Verse 15. First, the call. Second, the celebration. Verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus. And his disciples were... And his disciples... Uh, with Jesus and his, and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. It is interesting uh, that they, he's, the first thing that happens after Levi gets saved is that he sets up a little party. It's probably at Levi's house. He's, he's, he's celebrating his new life. He's eating with Jesus, and Jesus here, he's reclining at the table. It's you know, it's not like, he's not like leaning against the table. It's like, kind of like, you know, it's more like laying on the floor and then they'll kind of circle around and eat together. In fact, that, that way of eating isn't even Jewish. It's a, more, it's a Roman kind of way of eating. So even though, so if you're just watching this as a scribe, you think this is like double jeopardy kind of thing. There's this evil person, this tax collector, and Jesus not only eating with them, but the way that he's eating it is like the Romans. 
So this is why it's so offensive to them. They see this. They see Jesus reclining at the table. And usually this is a sign of luxury when you're eating like that. Uh, and I guess Levi, he had a lot of money. So that's why he's able to live luxuriously. That's why they could eat in this way. But he's with Jesus was with all, with all of these tax collectors and sinners. And I find it fascinating that Mark puts them in two separate categories. It's almost like tax collectors is a greater sin of its own. It's in a different category by itself. And sinners. And sinners, in this case, is just everyone that does not follow God's law. And in the scribe's mind, though, is everything that, everyone that doesn't follow their own laws. So when you see sinners here, in the eyes of the Lord, yes, we're all sinners, but in particular with the scribes, they saw it as like, these are people who didn't even follow our traditions. And they were dining with Jesus. There's this unique fellowship there. Jesus and his disciples, and there is many of them, they're eating with, with, the Lord was eating with them. Now, you might think, well, why did, why did Levi do that? Why did he bring all those other sinner friends? Well, it's because that's the only friends he had. He didn't have anyone else. He was a social outcast of all the you know, socially outcasted people. They, I guess they found community within themselves. They're the only ones that were accepting. But when he got saved, he wanted others to know about this Jesus. He made this entire party so that people can talk with Jesus, so that, he can, so that people can interact and have their sins forgiven as well. And this should be our attitude as well. The moment we become a Christian, we should want other people to come to saving faith. I'm not saying invite them to church. That's one way. But more importantly, you, you yourself want, should want to tell other people about who Jesus is. You want to invite people to, our, to, to Jesus, to this heavenly place where we can one day dine with him. It should be a normal attitude in our life to go and tell other people about Jesus. Now, this verse in particular has been twisted by a lot of modern-day Christians and a lot of modern-day evangelicals tend to look at this passage and they say, oh, see, Jesus ate with sinners and hung out with tax collectors, and therefore I should be able to go to a bar. I should be able to go to the club. And there should be some warning here that just because Jesus goes into place, and I'm not doubting the fact that some of you guys might think that way, but just understand that when Jesus went into these places, he wasn't corrupted by it. He didn't think of, oh, what would be fleshly, what would be good for my own pleasures. He thought, how can I be a testimony and win these people to Christ? Most of the time when people think of those terms, especially modern Christians, they tend to use this as an excuse to dive into sin. They, they mask their sin, sinful indulgences with this evangelistic zeal just so they could live in sin. When I was in seminary, I had a professor that said, there was this one student, he, former student he had, that had this desire to win prostitutes to Christ, like Jesus did it. So he went to all the red light districts by himself. And maybe for one week or so, he was fine and faithful, but it was not long after before he himself was indulging in sexual sin. Sometimes we make excuses for our sin and we try to label it as evangelism or gospel opportunity, but we're really just making excuses for the flesh. It's easy for us to think that we are doing what is faithful to the Lord, but in reality, the Lord knows your own heart, and sin will find you out. It is hard to be in the world and not of the world. I'm not saying that you shouldn't hang out with non-Christians. I'm just saying that you should be mindful in the way that you engage non-Christians. Because sometimes people will say, well, I need to watch this kind of movie so I can have dialogue with my non-Christian friends. I need to talk a certain way so that my non-Christian friends can understand what I'm saying. 
or I need to go to this sort of social gathering or, or do this uh, thing, this social activity, in order to, to create a pathway into their heart with the gospel. And oftentimes, you'll find that there is no gospel opportunity. In fact, if anything, that compromises your own testimony. You claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you live exactly like them. What makes them want to turn away from sin? If you live like that, and you're telling me to turn, and your life and my life are identical, then what's the point? So don't think that you, just because Jesus is able to do this, that it's a go and do likewise exactly like how he did it. Because yes, Jesus was able to do it, and he was not corrupted by it. And some of you might be able to do that, but the heart is so deceitfully wicked that sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're able to be unstained by the world. Bad company corrupts good morals. And again, I'm not saying that you should not uh, witness your non-believing friends and family members to, to be isolated completely, but I'm just saying be very mindful of the fact that you and I can fall into any sin. That sin is so alluring and deceptive that we can make excuses for the sake of the gospel, quote-unquote. But notice, back in the text, verse 15, Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and this is many sinners and tax collectors, and they were following him. Who were the they? These were the scribes and the Pharisees. And, which gets to our next point. You know, there's a celebration thing. Well, before we go to the next point, there's a celebration that happens here. And I think that's just the reality of Christians. When we, see, when we celebrate, when we celebrate communion every single month, in a sense, it is a foreshadow of having this meal with Jesus Christ. And it's, it's unfortunate that we use like the little styrofoam kind of bread and the weird grape juice. Because I would imagine, that's not even close to what the heavenly meal is going to be like. Think of what the greatest meal you've had in your life. Times that by infinity, that's exactly how just the appetizer is like in the heavenly courts. You know, it would be cool if we, one of these days when we're able to eat together, we should maybe have like real bread and like, I'm not going to say real wine, but grape juice. <laughs> and just have a meal together because that's kind of like a love feast is what it is. Like you're eating together and this will be a picture of the celebration that you have with Jesus Christ. So this is a little foreshadow here that we can celebrate. And as Christians, we should be very joyful because of that. Because of what Christ has done on, in our behalf, we can look forward to the day where we can go face to face with our Savior and have a meal with him and commune with him, and not just with him, but with every other brothers and sister in the faith from all time. It should be a normal, for, it should be norm, a normal thing for us as Christians to celebrate the salvation of everyone. That's why we rejoice. I mean, if angels rejoice when one person gets saved, we should rejoice as well. Whenever someone comes to saving faith, they should warm our heart. It should be the encouragement that we think about. When we think about one, of an, one another in the church, each and every single one of us around us, the, the believers, should make us Rejoice. We're so thankful that each and every single one of you are here because you're saved. You're rescued by the Lord. And so you know, we're all rescued by the Lord, so we should celebrate that. So Christians should be the most joyful people because we understand what it took for us to have this right relationship with him. So not only do we see God's kindness in, in the call and celebration, but there we see God's kindness in the third scene I call the conflict. The conflict, verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now, they were 
you know, these scribes, they thought themselves as radically pure and holy. They claimed to have such a concern for their own moral purity and not be corrupted by those around them that they want to isolate themselves from who they thought were evil people. Now, these scribes and Pharisees, they had like 600-something rules. I mean, Moses only had the Ten Commandments. They thought, no, that we need to add to that. So they added the traditions and, and their own worldly advice to this. And when people can't hold to those standards, they call them sinners. And there was this great group of scribes who were just following because they felt that their influence was being lost. People start talking about this Jesus, how he can forgive sins. And remember, these Jew, like Levi and these other Jewish people, they wanted to have this communion with the Lord again. But because of the Pharisees, because of the scribes, because of their legalistic mentality, they forced this separation between God and man. And then finally, they find someone that's willing to bridge that gap for them. And they want to know who this is. And they follow Jesus. And they see him eating with these sinners. These Pharisees were the elites in terms of the law. They thought holiness was, was, was all the laws that they can fulfill. And even for them, holiness wasn't easy. Even for those that are self-righteous in our modern-day context, it's not easy for them to do those type of things because they actually, should, they actually try to live up to their own self-righteous standards. They fail, but they do their best to try to keep it that way. They saw Jesus eating. Again, the Jewish mind eating was a sign of friendship, was a sign of fellowship and closeness. And Jesus, is, they see Jesus with all of these guys that they will never, ever associate themselves with. The Jews didn't want to eat with tax collectors and sinners because they thought that just by being near them, they'll be defiled. And again, they asked his disciples, and this word says actually grumbled. They were grumbling. Like, rawr, rawr, rawr. That's like the word here. They're grumbling to his disciples. Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors? They couldn't understand why someone that has so much popularity and prominence and prestige would hang out with all of these wicked people. And look, we in the book of Mark have talked about how Jesus healed a leopard. And there's a little interesting contrast. I think Mark deliberately put the leper earlier and the tax collectors now because there's a difference there. Lepers did not have a choice. They did not have a choice. Sometimes they just get afflicted by, by leprosy. But tax collectors did have a choice. And they saw those people as doubly wicked because they chose to tax their own people. So he questions them, why would Jesus do this? Now, I know what I just said at first about being, being mindful and watchful of your own heart when you spend time with non-Christians. But I sometimes think some Christians here can lean to the other extreme. We actually are more like the tax collectors than we like to admit because sometimes we think, well, I'm going to keep myself away from non-Christians. These people are so wicked, and I just can't be around them. And just understand, the world is just getting darker and darker. And we're called to be lights of the world. We have to go out there. We have to make disciples. We have to go into darkness and declare the good news. It's very easy for us to want to stay in our comfort zones. We, we think of ourselves as Christians, and the only people in our lives are Christians because if we have any non-Christians in our life, that we're going to be defiled. And we don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to be in these uncomfortable positions because those are 
Because we could, because there are sometimes people, yeah, they might they not may not live the way that we would live. They don't live up to our own self righteous standards. Don't use the excuse of holiness to not have any Christian in, to not have any uh, non Christian encounters. We're called to be the salt of the world, and salt is useless if it's stuck in the salt shaker. We call ourselves Christians. We need to go out in the world. We need to be holy people to win people to Christ. We identify with them in the, fact, in the sense that we need a savior, but we don't identify with non-Christians in terms of wanting to sin. And that's where we should relate to those that do not know Jesus Christ, because we were once in that position. We were not once in that position where we were separated from the Lord, where we were lost and blinded by our own sin. And the Pharisees were legalistic. They had all of these rules in order for people to become a Christian or become a Jewish, a Jew, to follow Judaism. Sometimes I think Christians, we, we, we may not be pharisaical doctrinally, but practically we, we act like a Pharisee. Don't isolate yourself by not having any non-Christians in your life. We're called to evangelize and hopefully assimilate others to the, to the gospel. That doesn't mean we isolate, but we help share the gospel and hope that they could assimilate with Jesus Christ. And Jesus here, he is dining with them, and I know that he was teaching them because early in the chapter and even this portion, he was teaching them. It was his goal to try win people to Jesus Christ, to, to, the, to the kingdom of God, to win people to salvation. And these Pharisees, they just grumbled and grumbled. They said, why is he drinking with tax collectors? Because I think in their own minds, they were thinking Psalm chapter 1. Right? We're familiar with Psalm chapter 1, blessed, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he violate Psalm 1 1? Well, it's because Jesus is holy. He goes into a place and he sanctifies the place. But when we think we can just keep the separation that will make us sanctified, that doesn't, make, that doesn't help. We, don't, we can't be a sanctifying agent of the, world, of the Lord if we're isolated from the world. We need to go and make disciples, and that means there's a balance here. We don't want to be like those that abuse verse 15 about, oh, I'm just hanging out with all these non-Christians and do all these non-Christian things, but at the same time, we don't want to be like these Pharisees and scribes that we would be so isolated and think that, I want to live this monastic lifestyle and be like a little monk, just hang out at church all the time and not have any non-Christian friends. Our hearts tend to lean to these extremes. We either want to be in the world or, so, or completely out the world. And Paul in 1 Corinthians tells that, look, you can't do that. You, you can't, in order for you to be away from sinners, you have to leave the planet. And I'm not saying, you know, go to the moon or anything like that. Which is the reality that you are going to be in the midst of sinners, this is where we see Jesus so gracious and kind because he was dining with people that did not deserve his grace. I think these people understood their own sinful depravity. They understood all of their sin. They understood how much they've, uh, harm they've caused to their fellow brothers and sisters. They knew their sin, and they were, they were basically chastised by these scribes. And Jesus was the only one that offered them any hope that they could be made right with the Lord. These 
scribes and Pharisees, they missed the real conflict. They saw the surface level things and they thought that those are the real problem, but they missed the main problem. That is that these people are separated from God. How can these people be made right with the Lord? And Jesus is the only one that was able to offer them hope. And we see God's love for, those, for sinners, that he's willing to be gracious to us as well. We don't deserve God's kindness, but he's, he invited us and we received his salvation. We are, one day, we'll be able to dine with him. Now, it's fascinating that he, in the, the scribes, it said they grumbled. This, the language here, is, to me, is fascinating because it's kind of like, it's one of those things where Jesus, the word, the picture here is kind of like they were far away from Jesus because, you know, he was in the house. And he's kind of grumbling loudly, like loud enough so that Jesus can hear. So they didn't talk to him directly. They're just telling his disciples, wait, why is your leader eating with sinners? You know, it's like, it's like they're trying to attack the person without directly attacking them. That's a, you know, cowardice way and childish way to deal with this. Which then gets to Jesus' response, which is our fourth point. How do we see Jesus' kindness? And he is because the cure. First, we see it in the call when he calls Levi. Second, the celebration when Levi is celebrating with, uh, with Jesus and all these other sinners. The conflict that they have here is like, why would Jesus sit with these sinners? And then the fourth scene is the cure. The cure. And Jesus, after hearing this, was, he's like, those loud enough where Jesus heard, he turns over there and just confronts them head on. And he said this to them It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So it was loud enough for Jesus to hear, and he responds this way. And, you know, the scribes would agree with him. The scribes would totally say, yeah, a healthy person doesn't need to see a physician. Only sick people do. And really, this exposes that the scribes didn't really care about those who were sick. Because right, if the Pharisees understood, if scribes understood that there are sinners out there, they would do all that they can to, to, to offer a cure. But they did not. They like being this high horse and in their own legalistic self-righteous. And this phrase is obvious, too. Is obviously, only sick people will find a physician. And physicians, interestingly, even back then, they don't usually visit people. Right? Even in our day, very rarely will a doctor go to your house as we go to the hospital. Right, but Jesus, he's the one that goes. He initiates. He's the one who goes, and he is that great physician who cares for those that are sick. And when Jesus said this, it really is an attack on the scribes. And again, it sounds ironic because Jesus would agree that, yeah, yeah, you guys aren't sick. You guys are you're good right? with all your laws and your self-righteousness. You guys are fine. And the Pharisees made Judaism into some sort of exclusive insider's club and Jesus gave sinners hope and healing. And said, so those who are sick, and at the end, he said, I didn't, call, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, Jesus did this. Earlier, he called, the, the, uh, Matthew, he called uh, Peter and, uh, and his brother, and now he's calling uh, Levi. So this is this normal thing where Jesus is calling people to salvation. And and again, we see that Jesus himself comes to those that are sick. And these people, they acknowledge the fact that they are sinners. And we understand that we were sick too. And we want to tell other people about our great physician. In Second Kings, there was this, uh, there was a leopard. And uh, they, 
you know, Israelites, the Israelites were scared at the time, and uh, they were losing, and then there was all these armies around, and the armies were basically scared away by the Lord. These lepers came, and they saw all the food everywhere, and when they were eating it, they're like, hey, how can we go and eat all of this and not tell our people that there's food out here? And these lepers in the Old Testament went and told the people, hey, you guys are safe. God has provided for you. These leopards and the Old Testament, they understood evangelism. They understood that there is a need within their people, and they're willing to tell other people about it. And I wonder if that's where you and I, are we like that? Are we, people, are we sick people that can point other people to the great physician? Do we understand God's kindness to us by offering us the cure for our sin? And are we willing to go and tell other people about it? You know, I think the... The reason why a lot of ways, there's multiple ways, but I think one reason why you think about why there's such a moral decay in our culture is that we're not as faithful in our evangelism as we like. We're not offering the cure for people. We make excuses and why not, why we don't tell people about Christ. Now, I know there are some of you that are faithful. You're praying for your non-believing friends and family. You're trying to create opportunities for those things. But I think all of us, objectively speaking, can do a better job at it. We all need to think about those that are sick, spiritually sick, and, be, and are able to go and offer them a cure, because without this cure, there's no hope for any of us. And why culture decays, why the church loses influence, is because we don't want to be a light in the world. And Christ saved us, and we need to have that same desire to go and call others and tell people about this cure. Jesus came, and he's a friend of sinners. He demonstrated this by calling Levi to himself and by celebrating with him and then dealing with this conflict with the Pharisees and telling them that these sick people need a cure. Jesus came. He was not polluted by the things of the world. In fact, he cleansed people of their sin. He washed all of us clean and as white as snow. And Jesus models to us in a lot of ways how to live life in this fallen world. He shows us that he is a friend of sinners, and we want to go and tell people. We want to be friends with sinners, too, because we are friends with this great Savior. We want to be friends with other peoples and tell them about Jesus Christ. Christianity isn't for those that are self-righteous, but it's those that are sick, those who understand that they need a Savior and have accepted the cure. So that's, if you are here tonight and you have not accepted Jesus Christ, understand that you are spiritually dying. Uh, without this cure... Uh, there's no hope for you. The only thing that's left for you is death. And the only way for us to have this cure is to believe that Jesus Christ came into this world as a friend to sinners. He's calling people to himself. He's giving us all, all of us an opportunity to have all of our sins washed away. Every single small sin to every big sin, everything that even the social people outside of the world, they may not like you for certain things. Even those sins are forgiven by our Lord. And it's a free gift. It's not something that you need to do. It's not something that you need to achieve. It's nothing you even need to do to say. But you have to trust that Jesus Christ died for your sin and rose again three days later. And signifying to us that one day in our death, in our physical death, we'll one day come back to life with a physical body and be able to dine with him just like how Levi and others have dined with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your kindness towards us, being a friend of sinners. We do not deserve your attention, 
who are we that you have decided to give us, just to give us even your attention more than that, Lord, that you've died on the cross for us, that before the foundation of the world, that you chose us to be your, your child, Lord. And I do pray for those, for all of us here, really, that we invite people to this heavenly place where people can dine with you, people can fellowship with you. And I do pray that you give us boldness, just like how your son was. He did not care about the critics, did not care about being uncomfortable, but he cared about people. That he was this loving friend to those who want to find hope. Lord, I do pray for those who here do not know you, who don't have a right relationship with you, that they will accept you, not just as their friend, but as their Lord and Savior, that they confess to you their sin and place their faith in you. Lord, be with us this weekend. May we be faithful, and may you even give us opportunity to share the gospel with those in our lives. We thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.